welcome to the Experience Pod. My name is Dr. Damola Oladosu. The Experience Pod is a one-on-one interviewer-led podcast that discusses the adoption and utilization of relevant emerging technologies and trends for impact-oriented professionals, researchers, developers, and students who demand realistic and thought-provoking perspectives on the opportunities and challenges presented by these phenomena in our unique environment. We often talk about Nigerian culture, specifically music, fashion, and film, as one of the country's most successful international exports. And although it's difficult to quantify its economic impact, The Guardian estimates that the Nigerian creative industry, which accounted for 2.3% of the nation's GDP in 2016, would have more than doubled in the last four years. In both private and public sector conversations, The creative sector has been highlighted as a key sector to drive innovation, digital economic development, and global influence. On this episode, we're joined with Ojoma Ochai, who's the Regional Director of Arts and Creative Economy Programs at the British Council, Nigeria, to understand more about how Nigeria's creative economy is being financed and shaped for the future. Welcome, Ojoma, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Great. So we'll get right into it. For those who might not be familiar with the term, what is the creative economy? And how does your work with the British Council drive investment in Nigeria's creative economy? Thank you for that question. So the creative economy has lots of definitions. But fundamentally, it's about the economy that's built on goods and services that are based on intellectual property. And so it's typically referring to sectors like fashion, music, film, performing arts, visual arts, where a person creates Mm -hmm. um, and that creation is then put to some kind of commercial value. When I say a person creates, I smile because when we start to talk about digital, there's a sense of sometimes, increasingly, it's not a person that mm-hmm. creates. And what does that right. mean? But that's a right. different discussion. But creative economy fundamentally is about this idea of creativity leading to goods and services that are based on that creativity or that art mm-hmm. that then get converted to commercial use. So mm-hmm. different countries would have different sectors that they consider as creative industries. And so you would have, say, in Lebanon, they consider culinary arts to be part of their creative industries. And the sectors can be quite different. But fundamentally, it's about the thing. Okay. So you already touched on this right now, but can you speak a bit more specifically about the Nigeria creative industries and its peculiar characteristics or key challenges? Okay, sure. So I think the starting point for talking about Nigerian creative industries and Nigerian creative economy is to make the point that these industries and this economy exists in a Nigerian context. So everything to do with this context (laughs) is applicable. It's a really funny point. (laughs) Um, I often have to make this point, and I'll tell you why in a second. But the thing to note is, one, it exists in the context of Nigeria. But to the original thing about the definition, we think that the creative economy in Nigeria is one area where Nigeria has a very strong competitive advantage, even Mm -hmm. with this caveat. Even with the problems. Yeah. And the reason for this is back to the definition. 
mm-hmm. of creative economy. Remember that I talked about the fact that it's based on individual creativity. So a person creates something. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the sort of issues in quotes with Nigeria, a lot of the issues are at a institutional or systemic or society level. Mm-hmm. Whereas the creative industries fundamentally by nature are based on the creativity of an individual. Mm-hmm. And so you find that that individual creativity, regardless of the macro challenges or the institutional challenges, in a way are beyond the challenges. And so that creativity thrives, that ability to create, whether it's music mm-hmm. or it's fashion and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a fundamental thing is that we have a lot of raw talent mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not even raw, I would go as far as saying that the talent is often very developed and that's probably linked to another characteristic of the Nigerian individual, which is resilience, right? Mm-hmm. This so, resilience. Because, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we're resilient does not mean we don't deserve ease, but that's a different issue. But, but to that thing about resilience, what you find happens is, mm-hmm. okay, so I don't know, if you look at film, say with back to that resilience factor, you find that, okay, if there's no animation training, then people will just go on mm-hmm. YouTube and learn it. Mm-hmm. And so I would go as far as saying that that talent is not raw. People go mm-hmm. to great lengths to, to develop, develop that talent. So I think from that perspective, that's a strength that the sector has. I think another strength that the sector has that we often don't talk about is the digital capability of Nigerians, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, mm-hmm. <laughs> the digital capability, like on balance, compared to when you look at the stats of our economic mm-hmm. growth or education levels, mm-hmm. I think that on balance, the digital capability is very strong. And so with the shift in technologies, we're not even talking about emerging technologies now, it has meant that there's a lot of self-development or lots of capitalization of that technology. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another strength. Mm-hmm. In terms of the weaknesses, I mentioned before that we need to take it in the context of the country. Mm-hmm. And one of the fundamental things with creative economy is intellectual property. And so if you're operating in a context where intellectual property is not protected, it means that your exploitation, your capitalization on that intellectual property is very limited. And so the strands of revenue that you would otherwise have earned from that intellectual property becomes quite limited. Mm-hmm. Intellectual property is governed by the legal, the justice, the policing systems in a country. So in a country where we know all the issues that we have with those systems, you can't single out intellectual property and say that's one area of that system that will work. You know, so fundamentally, that's an issue mm-hmm. with the creative industries. Now, having mm-hmm. said that, a lot of people talk about piracy and illegal copying. And I've always thought that we maybe don't know the extent of the piracy problem that we have. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that, in mm-hmm, fact, mm-hmm. we don't have a big a piracy problem as we think we have. I think what we have really, you is, think so? is a market failure in distribution. And that the piracy is only a symptom of that market failure. What do I mean? It means that if I want to consume a creative product, if you think about it, obviously digital is changing all of this. 
But if you think about it, what's the ease of me as a consumer getting access to this creative product that I want to consume? Often it's really challenging. And so people buying illegal versions is more to overcome an inconvenience than anything, I argue. And so I think that until we fix the distribution problem, we actually don't know the scale the of, it, of the piracy problem. Of the piracy problem. And I feel like, you know how it is when you have malaria, yeah, you take paracetamol, but you will also take whatever <laughs> it is that kills malaria, boniki. <laughs> you, you might even take antibiotics because you're not sure. <laughs> do, you, do you see what I mean? So I feel like when we're talking about piracy, we're talking about a symptom. But the root problem, as far as I'm concerned, is that we have a distribution problem. Hmm. And so that's what we should be trying to fix. That's actually a really, really interesting person. I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually um, break it down like that. That's really interesting. So maybe talk a bit about how your work at the British Council Nigeria then, it drives investment in Nigeria's creative economy, but also helps these individual creatives to overcome some of these systemic challenges that Nigeria just presents. Yeah. So first of all, a bit of background about the British Council. So we work in a number of sectors, including the creative economy, we work in education, basic education, higher education, and we work in other kinds of entrepreneurship, like social entrepreneurship. And fundamentally, the work that we do is about supporting outcomes for people in the countries that we work in from the perspective of cultural relations, what we like to call cultural relations, which is this thing around mutual understanding, interconnectivity, this idea of us all living in this globally connected world. And so there's experiences and knowledge to be gained both ways. So mm-hmm. all of our work is around mutual benefit between mm-hmm. the UK and the countries in which we work. And back to that thing about creative economy actually being an area of competitive advantage, we find that in our work, in this creative economy, the people we work with in the UK are learning as much from Nigeria as... Really? Indeed. This is a sector where we feel like truly mutually. Mm. It's not a one-way transfer of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So even something as simple as business models in film, there's a lot of interest in this DIY, Nollywood quick turnaround that's of great interest in the UK because that's not how that industry functions. And so in that context, there's this assumption of a lot of public funding and subsidies, which increasingly are drying up, which means that this do it yourself, fund it yourself, find the money. It's the new model. It's the new model. And so there's a lot of interest in working in that way. So our work is primarily about creating connections that spark learning both ways. And so what we're doing in a number of areas in creative economies, one around policy, we're very interested in supporting governments with the networks, the knowledge that they need to have about the creative industries to support it more effectively. So in the past few years, we did a lot of work around funding models for the creative industry. So we've worked in this area in Nigeria for over 10 years. And if you can think that far back, 10 years ago, a lot of what we take for granted now and complain about now didn't mm-hmm. exist. Like your bank of industry funds and your even commercial banks participating mm-hmm. in the creative industries or grant schemes or any kind of funding for creative economies mm-hmm. didn't exist. 
Mm. So we've done a lot of work with many of the people I've already mentioned, the banks of industries, the Nexims of the world, the Ministry of Finance, Ministry Mm. of Culture, around broadening the thinking linked to funding models for the industry. We've done a lot of work around mixed model funding. So we've had a time where at the very beginning of funding, it was very much around debt financing. It still is, actually, which we consider a bit problematic. But there was a lot of debt financing for the creative industries. And debt finance, i.e. loans, are only appropriate for certain kinds of transactions in the creative industries. And so a lot of the work that we've done over time is to push this idea of a mixed model of funding that mm-hmm. allows for equity, that allows for angel investing, that allows for grants funding at different stages of development for different types of entities. Mm-hmm. And so we worked a lot with the, the government on this front. When the Ministry of Finance did Project Act, maybe six years ago, we were on the advisory committee to set mm-hmm. that up because we've been in long discussions about mixed models. It was a grant scheme for Nollywood. So we've done a lot of work on the policy side. On the practice side, we do a lot of skills and capacity building. Mm-hmm. And our focus on skills and capacity building is on two levels. It's on the individual level and it's on the institutional level. So on the individual level, we focus a lot on entrepreneurship because, again, talent, creative talent is one thing. But if it's an economy and an industry, there's a lot of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. that needs to happen. To make money. <laughs> exactly. So we do lots of entrepreneurship training. We also do artistic skills training, digital skills training inc- increasingly. But we're also mindful that that's not sustainable, right? We need local institutions that have the capability to do that. So we do a lot of institutional strengthening work. We support creative hubs. We support sector organizations around developing their own capacity to be a more sustainable skills provider for the industry. We've also tried to do some work around TVET, technical and vocational education, in trying to set up a sector skills council for the creative industries to set standards, vocational skills standards for the creative industries. Again, linked to that thing of more sustainable training models. Because imagine if there was a sector skills council for all of the creative disciplines and you have a set of vocational skills standards. Mm -hmm. It suddenly means that the ecosystem for that skills provision becomes a lot more robust because Mm -hmm. you can start to look at your polytechnics and your IEIs, I think they call them, innovation institutions and so on, that are developing skills training to a specific standard that's comparable across whatever institution you go to in the country. Hmm. So we also do a lot of work around institutional capacity development. I should probably stop here, but there's a lot more I can talk about (laughs) around looking at different elements to try and support at different levels. It's really cool, really cool stuff. I think, again, it's interesting that as you're responding, your answers are actually related to my subsequent questions because the next question is around your experience with navigating the dynamics of working for a non-Nigerian development institution and really in driving a Nigerian sector, right? And if you think about it with like the historical criticism of the role of these cultural development initiatives really just being used to strategically extend the donor country's cultural influence. Have you had a lot of pushback on that or what has your experience been like? 
So in terms of trying to expand the cultural influence of the UK, one of the things I'm proudest of with the British Council is that one of our principles, values, is mutuality. So it's not about extending the UK's influence only. Mm. Clear. Well, it is to a certain extent. Only. That's why I said only. It's about mutuality, which goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying is that the work that we do will have mutual benefits. Mm-hmm. So it's beneficial to the country in that through our skills work, through influencing policy work, through raising awareness work, we're seeing shifts. So when we do our m and we're seeing shifts of this person was earning this much. A year later, they're earning this much. So there's real tangible economic value Mm -hmm. for the work that we do at the same time where we see the mutual benefits is from a number of areas a whole range of areas but because we're talking about the economic Mm -hmm. the more local trade there is in creative economy the more international trade there can be Mm -hmm. in the creative economy and that's of benefit to the uk Mm -hmm. as well so we're not going to pretend that there isn't sort of value back to the UK, but the value is not extractive in that we're supporting this sector to grow so that the creative expression of Nigeria, the values, the heritage of Nigeria can be expressed, which is value in itself. But there's also that economic value, which means that the more it grows, the more opportunities there are for collaboration with the UK. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that approach has meant that we're working a lot with government, with institutions. A lot of local players. To just... A lot of, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's back to that thing I was saying about institutional capacity building. Right. We could very well not do that almost <laughs> and make it such that if you want to be trained, you must come and meet us. But we don't want that. We want to be able to exit this space. Actually, I'll give you an example. In 2013, British Council set up Lagos theatre festival okay and the history is long but long story short was that we were trying to work in theatre there was very little infrastructure around the theatre sectors I don't mean hard infrastructure so even though that was an Mm -hmm. issue so we didn't have theatres and all that had infrastructure that was an issue but what we had was lots of independent theatre companies making work one play here one play there but this sense of an industry meant that as a lobbying tool, as a critical mass, it just wasn't strong enough. And we knew that that was an impediment to that sector working internationally, including with the UK, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. And so when we started Lagos Data Festival in 2013, we started it as a British Council project. So the first mm-hmm. one in 2013, British Council set up this thing. It presented work from four companies over a weekend at Echo Hotel. Hmm. And we managed the whole thing. We produced it. We did everything. By the way, we picked Echo Hotel very strategically. We had said Mm -hmm. there are no theatres, right, at scale. Since that time, obviously, things have moved on a little bit. Mm -hmm. We now have Terraculture, obviously. We have the theatres that Lagos State have built, but we still haven't got that physical theatre infrastructure. But we know that legitimately there's a type of theatre called site-specific theatre. It's a legitimate form of theatre where... You make work for the space that you have, right? So if you want to do a play set in a bar, you would do the play in a bar and we won't pretend that we're in a theatre. We all know we're in a bar. This play is in a bar. (laughs) (laughs) Vegas Theatre is a festival of site-specific theatre. So when we did it in a co-hotel, there was one on a lawn tennis court, one was in a car park, 
One was in the presidential suites because it was set in a house. And so to your point about mutuality and partnership, we've gone from 2013 British Council project, four plays over one weekend, to 2020, it's something like 35 companies over a week with, I don't know, over 100 shows. It's no longer a British Council project. Lagos Mm -hmm. Theatre Festival is now an independent entity. It's registered in Nigeria as a company limited by guarantee. British Mm -hmm. Council is not on the board. The board is Nigerian board of Nigerian individuals. So it's not about appropriation. It's about where can we meaningfully, you know, make add value. Lagos Theatre Festival now has people coming from Ghana, from the UK, from the US, from across Europe. The last Lagos um, Theatre Festival, there was somebody from, I can't remember, it might have been Finland or somewhere it's slightly random. Why? (laughs) (laughs) That's my point. It's not about... The UK specifically, right? Yeah, it's about mutual value. The mutual value comes from, obviously, these 35 companies, all the food sellers in Freedom Park, all the Mm -hmm. added value Mm -hmm. that that has. Mm. It also means that if a UK producer or a UK theatre maker wanted to show work in Nigeria, they can come to Lagos Theatre Festival. So it's that back to that thing of it being a win-win. It's not just about, you know, we can we can bring a show and put it in a co-hotel. Yeah. And people will buy tickets, they'll come and they'll see the British culture. Do you see what I mean? But for yes. us, it's not about that. It's about yeah. how do we truly support an ecosystem? Mm-hmm. that then creates lasting change that means value both for the country and mm-hmm. for the UK. Interesting. No, that's a really good example. So again, we talked about the system, Nigeria. Is it inevitable that the creative industries will reflect the social inequalities of Nigeria? And how can we then ensure more inclusive access for Nigerians from rural areas or with little to no prior training, with limited access to the internet or to YouTube, like we talked about earlier? How do we do that? I think that's a really good question. And it's a question that almost all creative economies are grappling with. Mm. Because what you find is that, okay, let's bring it back to Nigeria. Let me not go too far. That's not too broad. <laughs> the thing with a mixed model, as I was talking about, means that you're not excluded at the beginning if you can't afford certain things, right? Mm. So in the Nigerian creative economy, because it's the funding is so commercial, you're either making money off your shows that you're doing or whatever products you're producing, whether it's music or film or whatever, if you're not making money, you have to take a loan or you have wealthy relatives and friends and family that support your lifestyle until you start making money. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally... It means that it's very unequal. Now, this is not unique to Nigeria. Mm. In the UK at the moment, we're having lots of discussions about unpaid internships and how unpaid internships, which are heavily used in the creative industries, mean that if you cannot do an unpaid internship because you have no money, you're Mm. not going to do an internship. And if you don't do an internship, it means you can't get into any of the cultural institutions. So it's not a uniquely Nigerian problem, but I think that it's made worse in Nigeria because we don't have that social safety net. We don't have public subsidies for arts and culture. And so it becomes really difficult to get a leg in. 
Now, mm-hmm. having said that, I do think it doesn't 100% solve the problem, but the reality is YouTube, the internet means that even though there's still a problem of a digital divide and arguably maybe a widening digital divide, the access that the internet provides means that more people, I think, than would have got opportunities in the past can now get opportunities through social media, through the internet. So for example, if you did a demo and put it on, I don't know, Facebook or YouTube or whatever, where 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, you have to go and pay payola to a DJ in a radio station. If you don't have the money, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Whereas now, it's still difficult, don't get me wrong, it's still very difficult. But But the barriers are significantly lower. The barriers are significantly lower, exactly. So it's an issue that we think about all the time. In fact, at the moment, one of our main preoccupations is around digital inclusion. Hmm. Because when you think about it, as you mentioned with YouTube, if you don't have access to YouTube, what do you do? And so we're really thinking about two things. One is about broadening access. Mm Because in terms of exclusion, who's excluded? One, you don't have a device. Mm -hmm. Two, you have a device, you don't have money to buy data. Mm -hmm. Three, you have a device, you can buy data, but you don't even know that if you go on this website, you can learn this skill that will allow you to do this thing. Mm -hmm. So we're really thinking very hard about those audiences and thinking about what might our offer do to -hmm. support people in these categories Mm -hmm. to bridge that digital divide yeah cool interesting so with the well back to this nigeria problem again with the realities of the economic downturn and unemployment rates in nigeria especially among young people is increased exposure for artists or you know improving their knowledge gaps equally as important if it doesn't directly translate to profits or access to new markets and you know, related to that is how then should we be determining the success or the impact of investments in the creative industry? So I can improve your knowledge, but if that doesn't directly improve your profits, then is that, you know, how do we measure impact in in this case? Very interesting question. I was on a panel at the Online Archive Festival a few weeks ago, and we're talking about youth unemployment And one of the things I was saying on that panel is that we need to change the metrics that we use to measure success. Hmm. In that, a lot of organizations talk about, we trained 50 people. And increasingly, we're saying that that's a nonsense metric. It doesn't mean anything. You train them, then what happens? And then what, exactly. (laughs) If we don't change the metrics that we use to measure success, we'll keep doing the wrong things. Because if success is how many people you trained then we're only ever going to stop the argument there. And we say this from a place of, we've been there, we've done it, where the British Council, maybe five years ago, maybe even three years ago, that was our metric. But increasingly, you're asking yourself, so So what? So what? And so what? So the model that we're using now is to say, in each market where we're working, including in Nigeria, what are the factors that constitute obstacles to a young person going from point A to B. Mm. And point A is X Naira a month, point B is X Naira plus a month. Mm. And so our starting point is often to map 
all the obstacles and do two, one of two things. One is create a program that addresses all of the obstacles and then do a robust monitoring and evaluation process that allows us to demonstrate how addressing all these obstacles leads to this change hmm. and use those results to influence other people to do the same. Because obviously, in the scheme of things, our money is not that plenty, right? We're <laughs> in the scale of the problem. <laughs> so in like how much can you really do, right? <laughs> you support 100 people. That's a drop in the, you understand? So that demonstration model is saying, if you solve for X, Y, Z, this is what you get. And so what you're then saying to governments, to other people interested in addressing that space is do these five things that we did and this is what you'll get. So that's one model. Another model, which we often do on a sort of very hyper-local, so if you took Lagos, for example, you can look at Lagos and say, these are the five issues. So let's say access to finance, access to workspace, access to certain types of skills, um, distribution. So let's say those are the four problems. Hmm. There are some markets where you can say, access to finance is provided by XYZ. Maybe hmm. that access to finance is not for creative industries, but the parameters for accessing that finance is such that creative industries can access that finance and then you say actually these are the three things are the things that are missing so what you then do is to say how might we develop a program that addresses these three things and signpost the people in our program to the fourth thing mm -hmm. okay such that again you can measure the metrics all of our work is often around demonstrating mm -hmm. because the impact at scale that you need cannot be done by anyone. It cannot even be done by Nigerian government alone. Mm -hmm. So it has mm -hmm. to be through partnership. So mm -hmm. what we want to be able to do increasingly through our work is to demonstrate the effectiveness of models mm -hmm. and use that evidence to say this model works or this model doesn't work so that when you are doing your own, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so that's, that's the way that we're working that's really interesting. So Erin, we touched on um, funding models. So across other sectors, we're seeing newer funding models like crowdfunding. You know, there's a big thing around the sharing economy. Are you seeing the creative impact investment community embracing these trends? And if not, how do you think that these trends or these models can be used to drive investments in the creative sector? I think certainly pre-COVID, we were seeing a lot more interest in a number of areas. So angel investing was one area. Maybe 18 months ago, we did a session where we worked with Lagos Angel Network and we brought the founder of one of the biggest angel investor networks in the world, Angels Den, to come and talk to Lagos Angel Network because they were interested in deploying angel investing and angel financing towards creative industries. So we've done that kind of stuff. Lagos State as well, with Lagos Employment Trust Fund. Mm. We've also worked with them a lot around, again, we brought some specialists from a sort of, not social financing, but more government-led financing to help them think through their models for investing and intervening in the creative industries. And in fact, 
Following that, we're in a current partnership with Lagos State, where we're actually back to that thing I was saying, when you look at all of the things that affect the sector, mm. you can then design an intervention. So our intervention with Lagos is looking specifically at film. So Lagos State Employment Trust Fund obviously have money. So the access to finance question is solved. Is solved. Right. And then we looked at film and we looked across the inputs in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas that was weak in terms of skills is story, the story development okay. and scripts. And so we're doing a project with Lagos State where we're narrowing down into a very, very specific thing and saying, because we've done the analysis, we're saying these areas, you know, the production, the post-production, they're not obviously not perfect, but in the scheme of inputs, it's particularly fundamental and foundational. So we're narrowed it down on that specific thing and partnering with Lagos State's Employment Trust Fund and Biolala B Media to support teams of filmmakers to get massive inputs into their story development and script development. And then Biolala B Media will fund the production of a number of feature films from that process. Again, it's that thing of demonstration. We want to say that if you invest this much more in developing a story, then the financial reward of the story is this much more. And with Mm -hmm. this project, what we're trying to influence in this case, it's not government so much, it's the market. Mm -hmm. Because if you're making a commercial investment, we're saying to you, if you're investing for the sake of argument, 100K more in developing the story and your return on investment is $1 million more, then it will make financial sense. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think um, Ebony Life has done that well. I think well, it seems like she invests really heavily in at least the production and to the stories and to some extent. And, you know, her movies are typically very profitable um, in the market. So I think that's a really interesting point as well. So it seems like it's really a strong focus on building ecosystems and partnerships and, like, different parties solving for different problems is sort of the way forward here versus, you know, one party trying to solve all the problems by themselves. With, I think Ebony Life has done that well. I think, or it seems like, not in the industry, but it seems like she invests really heavily in at least the production and to the stories to some extent. And, you know, her movies are typically very profitable um, in the market. So, I think that's a really interesting point as well. So it seems like it's really a strong focus on building ecosystems and partnerships and like different parties solving for different problems is, is sort of the way forward here versus, you know, one party trying to solve all the problems by themselves. Absolutely. Really Absolutely. So what are the unlikely places or subsectors that you're seeing emerging technologies have an impact these days? If you look internationally, what are the emerging technologies, right? For creative industries, there's maybe five, six, I'll see if I can name them all, emerging technologies that look like they will disrupt the creative economy value chain. One is around artificial intelligence. And everything related to that, obviously within that, there's machine learning. I'm not a technologist, so I may get some of these terminologies wrong. But this idea of using artificial intelligence to make systems more efficient, right? So it's things like if you're 
I don't want to name brands and give them free kini on <laughs> But if you use like recommender systems, right? If you're watching a certain type of content on a platform for film or movie content, right? Recommender systems will use AI to predict what you're most likely to enjoy based on what you've watched before. Mm-hmm. The implication for that is that because we now know how people are behaving on these platforms, we know what kind of content to invest our money in mm-hmm. to get the most mm-hmm. return. Mm-hmm. So we think that AI will definitely play an outsized impact. Another thing that we think is around augmented reality and virtual reality in the sense that certainly with COVID and this idea of if we're socially distancing for a long time or we've socially distanced and we've tested it and we now know that it can work, we think that the way in which we're consuming content will probably change with these technologies in that what was considered a live, in quotes, experience will change fundamentally. Exactly. So when you're thinking about performing arts, visual arts, I don't need to go to... I don't know, the taste to enjoy an exhibition. What does that mean for galleries and physical spaces? So we think that's another technology. I think a really interesting one for Nigeria with intellectual property, as we've talked about, is blockchain technology. Mm. Obviously, I don't understand fully the technology behind it, but the possibilities are because content online will have some kind of digital signature, it means that you can track where things are going and so and where they talking, originated from. And where, thank you. Where they originated from. So in attributing revenue and attributing value, it can become a really powerful thing for Nigerian content makers. And even within that, there's the sort of micro IP. So it's one thing to steal a whole song. It's another thing to steal 10 seconds of a song. Even within that, there's still a really powerful possibility to do that. What else? The role of hardware. So all of these things that I were talking about are software implications. But the role of hardware, which I think is an area where Nigeria potentially can be really exciting, is the fact that if you think about it, what's maybe the most ubiquitous thing in Nigeria that everybody has? And it's such a cliche but it's phones, right? Like whether you're, you will have a version. Whether you have a techno, an iPhone, or you have something, some mobile So I think that an area of emerging disruptive technology is so obvious. It's in the role that hardware can play in distribution. Back to that thing I was saying about people are copying because they can't get access. If we find a way and I don't know the answer, but if we find a way, and if I knew, I wouldn't even tell you. What would I tell you? <laughs> find a way to translate that ubiquity into means of distribution, then it would be really exciting. Some telcos have tried it. I remember maybe two or three years ago, artists were earning up to 600,000 USD on callback tunes. Mm. So that was one innovation that was a very specifically Nigerian, maybe African thing. So I feel like mm-hmm. that's an area where we're seeing innovation. And there's various, mm-hmm. again, I don't want to call brands, but there's various innovations that different handset manufacturers and so on are testing mm-hmm. that I think will potentially lead to quite interesting things. 
You already touched on my question, which was around how mobile collaboration could actually support creators to interact with international ecosystems and international markets. I think there's so much to be done, especially even as phone manufacturers start to innovate with some of the emerging technologies that you talked about, so like AR or VR, for example. Mm-hmm. I think that there could be really disruptive things happening in the creative sector um, going forward. At the British Council, are you making any targeted investments on technology-driven initiatives specifically? or? Yes, actually, at the moment, we've got a grant scheme that's open until... I want to say 18th of November, where we're giving up to £50,000 to organizations to develop digital innovation in the creative industries. That's called the Can digital innovation apply? fund. <laughs> yeah, if you're eligible. <laughs> if you're eligible. With, with these things, the thing with these things is that we like to prioritize arts organizations because PwC I'm sure people can find money in different places whereas arts organizations are pretty limited options it's a global fund it's a global fund that we're running across the world but obviously we're really keen to get applications from across um, Africa for digital innovation so increasingly we do lots of grants and increasingly we're saying either the grants have a strong digital component running in them or they're focused on digital, like this one, that's purely around digital innovation. And we expect that we will only see more of those in the future. And back to that thing about, you know, cultural influence, the grant is open to Nigerian or any other institution in eligible countries in the world to apply for. Okay, that's cool. So how quickly do you think we'll start to see emerging tech adoption in the creative sector in Nigeria? Like if you could estimate like a timeline. I don't think there's one timeline, to be honest. I think that there's so many factors. One, it depends on the technology. It depends on the sector. Like the thing we're saying about blockchain, I think music will be much quicker (laughs) because music in terms of the the appeal, the global appeal and the markets are international. I feel like in the next couple of years, we'll probably start seeing a lot more innovation and adoption mm-hmm. around that area. Also, mm-hmm. because I know there's lots of people starting to think about, you know, that space where mm-hmm. technology companies are partnering with artists and musicians to think through. So I think mm-hmm. that's one area where we will see quite a rapid shift. For the other areas, maybe not Nigeria, I think like, Things like VR, AR, is, it, there's a lot of interesting things happening like in Kenya or South Africa. In fact, last week, there was an AR, VR festival that was focused on African content. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that thing about Nigeria not wanting to be left out will mean that because other people are doing it, we'll probably <laughs> start doing it. So yeah, it, I think it's different things for different sectors and different technologies. Great. Thank you. That's that's really interesting. We're going to switch to the fun part. What was the last prediction that you got wrong? Everything 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I think 2020 just cancelled. I feel like after 2020, we all just need to learn to be humble and just stop predicting well, things. Like, <laughs> you get me. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, okay, cool. What's one view you seem to find very few people agree with you on? That Nigeria, like, 
So the views I have about the solving of the problems of Nigeria, like we all know what the problem is, but our approach to solving it is so radically different. And I have quite particular views, which I'm not sure is politic. They're not, probably not politic. Let us leave it at that. <laughs> okay, we can, we can take this off the podcast. <laughs> okay, our previous interviewees, Olamiju of Nextford University and Desiree of U Lesson, have questions for you. Desiree mm-hmm. wants to know. What is one African industry that you think is ripe for disruption that no one is paying attention to yet? And Olamido wants to know if money can truly save the world and make it a better place. Ooh, so industries ripe for disruption, creative industries. I think it's for me, I would say that. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, it's still on my Instagram bio. I wrote an essay article about how digital will disrupt the African creative economies. And it's kind of linked to some of what we've been saying. So I think mm-hmm. it's, it's very ripe for disruption. I don't think more money can save the world or make it a better place because I feel like all the money that we need to save the world and make it a better place is already in the world. It's the distribution of the money that's the issue, I think. So I think for me, the solution is redistribution of the money. All right, so final question. Disruption is interrelated. So in that respect, what's one perspective you'd like to get from our next interviewees? In this case, it will be Tolu of Chef Eros and Renny from Nock. So I'd be really interested to know what they think about how narratives, like perceptions of Nigeria shape the sort of international appeal of Nigerian food and therefore what that means for the potential global appeal that Nigerian food can have. Okay, that's a great question. Thank you so much, Ojoma, for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. I've really learned a lot from talking to you and we hope to see you some other time. Thank you very much for having me. It was a really enjoyable conversation. (music) 